Hi, this is Trent Knox, podcast producer and videographer for Robert Gardner Wellness. I just wanted to thank you for listening to this episode. It means a lot to Robert and I that you would take the time out of your day to hear what Robert and his guests have to say. May I ask you of a quick favor? If you have gotten any value out of this podcast, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, and share the link on social media. Once again, thank you for your support and enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey guys, I'm Robert Gardner, and today I'm here with Walt Fritz, PT. Really excited to have a conversation with Walt. He's had a fairly profound influence on my work and the way I interpret what I do. Um, Walt is one of those colleagues that I will occasionally make contact with to ask questions, to refine some of my knowledge base. Um, really happy to have him on the show as a colleague and a peer, um, friend even. So, uh, Walt, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and give us a little bit of information about you and uh, maybe your background. All right. Thanks for being here or for having me here, Robert. This is the second time we've been together. I think the first time we were sort of stuck in this mode, right, where I just (laughs) words happen with a coffee cup just sort of held right here. So I'm going to pretend that that doesn't exist at all. Um, So I am a uh, my name is Walt Fritz. I'm a physical therapist. I have a um, a private practice in Rochester, New York, but I also uh, travel around the world now teaching my version of manual therapy, my version of myofascial release to massage therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and more recently, um, speech pathologists. And um, I teach a very um, non-denominational, very generic version of myofascial release, which um well, it kind of sits the wrong way with some people because I don't um, honor the fascial gods like many people do, and um, I just use it as a way to frame the kind of work that I do. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about that a little bit today, and um, we're going to talk about some other things too, but that's who I am. That's how I'm here and why I'm here. Robert and I met, gosh, man, what was it, five or six years ago um, in oh, Dallas, you and I met. Yeah. Wow. I, I think I it might be. The time goes by. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I might have actually had hair when that happened, but... Um, <laughs> And, you know, since that time, we've, we've became, become more than colleagues, like you said, good friends, and uh, um, get together virtually more than in uh, face-to-face. And it's really about comparing narratives. And even though your um, brand of Thai massage and my brand of manual therapy, myofascial release, um, at first glance don't resemble much of each other, there's, a, there's an interesting overlap of narrative and an interesting overlap of ideals, um, not in terms of the, just in terms of the work, but also... I think the philosophy that we share in terms of reaching people. So glad to be here. Good, good. Um, We'd already talked about the fact that we're likely going to do maybe a series of these. So we have lots of time to stretch out. Uh, Is there anything specific that you wanted to sort of kick off uh, as our discussion today? Um, Is there something, I know you talk about narrative constantly and you're also influenced by the pain science community uh, as am I. Uh, regularly I'll ask you questions about things related to that, or if I'm kind of in a, a question with a client out of my pay grade, I would sometimes, you know, write you and just ask a basic question to see if you could point me in the right direction as far as research. Um, is there something that's really kind of sticking on you that you want to discuss? Uh, no. <laughs> So uh, this, is, this, this is, by the way, uh, watching this, this is totally unscripted, and um, we have we don't have a series of questions set up. We're just going to, Robert and I have done this enough where I think we can shoot from the hip and not be totally um, boring the pants off of you. Um, so what I'll tell you is, 
I see students in classes. So I teach what essentially started as time massage. I'm yep. teaching the rudiments, the foundations, the biomechanics of time massage to students. And then as I started to be more influenced by your work and way of thinking and then looking at the pain science community, and this is very much as a, a novice in a sense, like I'm trying to understand, well, what is the actual biology of what we're doing? Why does the work that I'm performing, why does it seem to help people? In clinical experience, it seems to work, but what's the, what's the fundamental underpinning? The more I delved into that and broke away from a more energetic understanding of time massage, according to like energy pathways, sun lines, what I noticed for me and what I found annoying was students in class sometimes wanted magic. They wanted yeah. energy lines. They wanted Southeast Asian mysticism. And I was completely confounded that they didn't want, like they wanted tradition, in other words. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, I, that's my history too, in terms of myofascial release background and craniosacral and some of the other options. I mean, I um, study with Barnes, study with Upledger, and you know, I think I, I I got a good grounding in a lot of principles that I thought were important, a lot of principles that I thought were port, sort of counterculture to um, traditional, ooh, air quote, Western medicine, and how somehow everybody's missing the boat because they're not listen, l- looking at um, at fascia, looking at ener- energy and emotions held in fascia, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I got sucked down that rabbit hole pretty darn profoundly and, um, you know, had my ears pinned back at the bottom of the hole for a long time, seeing the world from a fascial perspective. Um, and, it, you know, I, I uh, quote just got her on a Facebook the other day about that I had said something about the farther down the rabbit hole you go in terms of the modality that you're learning or you've learned, the less apt you are to see the actual full human being in front of you and all the biopsychosocial implications of why they might be coming to see us. Boy, the biology, the biomechanics, et cetera, is so tempting. It's just, it's almost too easy. It's too easy to blame postural asymmetry or skeletal asymmetry or muscle weakness or trigger points or, you know, fill in the blank of the the literally hundreds of different pathologies that you and I have an opportunity at least to learn. And for some, in some cases that we already have learned, all of those could be important at some level, but you know, I think that we're missing the opportunity that's presented to us to engage with the human being in front of us. Um, I I ventured more and more into looking at the psychology of our work, into the, the social impact of it and how we can influence that person in pain or the person with any kind of movement disorder who comes to see us versus, versus like tuning all that out and just thinking it's all about that tight fascia within their, you know, fill in the blank of the body part of your choice. So. Um, I, I think you and I are venturing off in similar directions that in many ways isn't popular, but Hey, that's kind of cool. Um, if we're doing no, the same I'm, thing I'm as anybody else, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're doing the same thing as everybody else, why bother? And, you know, it's not just about having a uh, playing a different tune or being off key or whatever. Um, I think it really is, is maybe presenting, um, a perspective and a narrative that might align itself better with how, um, the general medical community can see us. The general health community can see us, and um, I do think that's important in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, how we present the work. So, yeah, the the reason I you know went towards um, your class, other than the fact that it was available, it was in Dallas. I think also yeah. I had had a brief conversation with you uh, before class, meaning online. 
which for me is also a big um, step because I need an educator that I can, you know, just have a, a quick conversation with. And because of the little bit of trust and rapport we had built from that single conversation, to my recollection, you know, I took class and then you never really know how a class is going to affect you. And it didn't particularly teach me a ton about different ways of manipulating soft tissue. It did teach me a lot about approach and about communication. And some of the things I got from that class specifically had more to do with verbal communication with clients than it did with tissue work. And right. one of the, the pieces that really stuck that I found most interesting when I'm dealing with students in my classes is, you know, I'll, I'll jokingly tell them, you know, my stance is that science is good, mm-hmm. is that research studies are good and more information is good because the primary goal was always to help clients out of pain. Yeah. Yep. And it doesn't help them out of pain to maintain certain illusions about what we do. Understanding more of it, understanding biology, psychology, you know, social implications of what we do, yes. But generally speaking, as someone who considers themselves a novice in regards to pain science, it was also, I felt like I owed it to my clients to begin the process of unloading some of my baggage and saying, mm-hmm. okay, so what does this actually do? There's a sort of heroic component to me of, um, I think of specifically Neil deGrasse Tyson, maybe Bill Nye, the science guy. Sometimes I include Alton Brown in this. There's this, this sort of heroic gesture in saying, I, I don't know. Let's, let's do research and find out, which I think mm-hmm. is the fundamental underpinning of uh, science and maybe science theory. It's being able to say, we, you know, this is where we think we have knowledge based on our research. And this is, right. we don't know. We're, we're still trying to figure out what's going on out here with quasars as much as right. we're still trying to figure out what's going on with biology and the nervous system. There's a sort of ethics to being able to say that. And also, it seems more honest. And the clinical implications for me meant that. Hopefully, I was going to be able to help my clients more and sooner rather than later. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I just I had something to come up on my screen there, and I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, it's just for me, uh, some people, I think there's a certain there's a certain comfort in belief. And I was a former philosophy student who became a massage therapist. So I got very comfortable with Socratic ignorance and I don't know. Yeah. Um, I got my train of thought back after that pop up on my screen. Sorry about that because I, I, I'm incredibly similar to you in being very comfortable saying, I don't know. Um, I think leaving or ending um, a conversation on, I don't know, often doesn't sit well with clients, with patients, with other professionals, et cetera. Um, but instead of saying, um, I know the answer, and by the way, nobody else knows the answer but, but people who've studied with me, which I think is, is just a bunch of crap. But um, I, I'm comfortable saying, I don't know, but here's a couple possibilities. Here's a couple possibilities that, that others, other people, um, people smarter than me, might think are useful and, and plausible. I think from a patient-centered perspective, which is part of the evidence-based model, um, 
I think it's important to validate the patient's perception, the patient's beliefs. And some of that, I don't want to sound like I'm just sort of, um, you know, give, telling them what they might want to hear. Um, I believe that it's about acknowledging that, you know, the story that they were told when they came into my office could be true. It could be, for instance, the trigger points. It could be, you know, it could be their weakness. It could be their, their flabby core. It could be their crappy posture. It could be all this stuff. Um, I, I do validate that because I think it's important that we feel heard and not um, dishonored when it comes to that. Um, but then I will also insert an alternate possibility. And I don't mean necessarily alternative possibility, but an alternate possibility that from a, um, a neuroscience perspective potentially um, holds truth as well. And then what I like to do is I give them one, give them two, give them a couple opportunities to say, it could be this, this, or this, the reason you're having problems. But then let's, let's turn this into action. Let's turn this into something that um, instead of it being about me telling them what's wrong with them, I'd rather make it about things that the two of us could do together to see if we can move through this problem we're suffering with. Yeah. There's a, a tendency, I'll have clients come in, they have you know some sort of pain usually, and then they'll have a million questions about why they're in pain. Right. right. And I don't, one, I don't belittle their pain. I yeah. ask them questions. Well, okay, you have pain. Where is it? How does it feel? Is it sharp? Is it broad? Is it this? Is it that? You know, do you notice that anything makes it feel better? Is it when you stretch, when you bend forward, when you lengthen? Um, even just in that process, like when we talk about the psychosocial component, it's always interesting to me, especially people uh, who've been in chronic pain for years, they're always so taken aback when five to 10 minutes later, they're still having a conversation with me and they realize, wow. I don't even talk about being in pain because I feel like I'm annoying everyone around in my family yeah. because they've yeah. been in pain for so long. It's, it's got this other emotional and psychological uh, triggers because you don't want to be the guy at the party talking about your arm pain because it's mm -hmm. not, it's not a fun conversation when people can't you know help you with your stuff. But right. I think also mm -hmm. if you took a, a pain scale <clears throat> You know, tens hospitals, zeros, no pain. They come in at a six. Just from having the conversation, if you ask them after that 10-minute conversation or intake, I think they might report that they feel a little less pain. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like not the, the physical, the tissue maybe related issue or pain that they feel. It's their almost like emotional and psychological response to that physical pain, especially when it's been right. chronic for long periods of time. Right. And I, and I can't speak for you, but I know I was schooled that, you know, when somebody walks out the door feeling less pain, it truly is all about um, commercial break. Sorry to cut oh, you off, okay. Walt. Just a quick yeah, commercial yeah. break. For a limited time, Robert Gardner Wellness is offering a free 30-day trial of his industry-leading subscription service, Reboot Insiders Club. That's right. Your first month is free of charge, and after that, it's only $7 per month to continue your subscription. Don't worry. You can cancel at any time, and if you cancel before the 30 days, you will not be charged. Inside, you'll learn massage and body techniques and how to thrive in business for only $7 per month. You get access to over 350-plus hours of online classes, including table and mat work and business and marketing. Membership to our Facebook group exclusively for subscribers. And additionally, you'll receive occasional bonuses. And in the past, we've given additional NCBTMB approved home study courses with CE credit. So don't wait. Get your free trial today. 
head on over to R-G-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S dot S-T-O-R-E. That's R-G-Wellness dot store. Can't wait for you to join our subscription service. And we're good to go. I'm here with Walt Fritz. And Walt, uh, as a physical therapist, continue what you were saying. Uh, you know, when somebody comes in and, and we see them, we interview them, we allow them to talk, we do our evaluation, um, and they walk out of our room often feeling different, better. It's so common, and I think a lot of it um, comes down to our rabbit hole training, where, yeah, see, your fascia was tight, or your trigger points were restricted, or, you know, fill in the blank, when the reality is is that that, that interaction that we have with, hu- with patients, the humans on our tables or um, in our room, is so multifaceted to say that, you know, first of all, we can't prove that it's their, in, in the MFR case, that's their fascia. But just like you said, Robert, just being allowed the opportunity to speak without judgment, um, to be heard clearly, um, and, I, and to be validated, I think, is one of the big pieces that are missing um, because we're so often quick to, oh, okay, tell your story, but let's get into what matters um, without realizing that the story matters often. And I do think we do them a disservice if we try and move through that too quickly, Um, thinking we need to get to the good stuff because maybe the good stuff is happening right now. Showing uh, clients how to work on themselves in addition Mm -hmm. to the work that, you know, the manual therapy I perform with them became a larger component of the educational process it's interesting. I, I have this general sense because I work with chronic pain almost specifically. It doesn't mean I don't occasionally get a relaxation session, but most of the people who come to see me have some sort of pain. Right. Um, it's an interesting response when people realize that I'm not necessarily trying to get them to come back again and again and again and again. I'm right. actually trying to help them get better. Hopefully, the bulk of the pain goes away show them how to work on themselves, minimize this cost. And they go, well, I don't understand how you get clients. And I'm like, referrals. When I help people in pain, they tell other people, and then people come to me for, you know, I have carpal tunnel syndrome or whatever pain issue uh, syndrome they may be dealing with. But I felt that the self-care component um, actually building the client up uh, putting them in a space where they can work on themselves and empowering the client created a dynamic where I was on an equal footing with the client, not I'm a you know superior, well, I'm an educator in the massage industry. Right. I know all these right. things as opposed to you're just the peon you know from the public right right yeah oh i think i I think that's huge. I think that that the the things that we that I do with my clients, my patients in session immediately translates into what can I do for myself. So for instance, if somebody is having an issue with their neck, right, and and I do work in this area, often what I'll do to teach home care um, is to take their hands and put their hands in that area. And then I'll do hand over hand with them, mirroring what we just did. And if if we can replicate that, the goodness that we just imparted, then I'll slowly ease away and say, you know, do you still feel some of that goodness? Do you still feel the ability to have less pain or to breathe easier, swallow easier, whatever that might be? Um, and that, that if so, then do this, right? And then, you know, we come up with numbers and dosing to tell them how often to do it because we're supposed to do that. But ultimately, um, if you can do it yourself, 
then can you continue these gains? And, you know, there's one other piece of homework I often give people, which just kind of drives people crazy because um, it's not dosable, first of all. Um, you can't say do this once a day or for five minutes or whatever. It's like they'll say, well, what should I do? You know, I feel better, but what should I do to keep it? And, you know, I tell them, well, it, what is it that you were missing in the first place? And if it's, you know, the ability to turn your head, for instance, what I want you to do is when you leave here today and tomorrow morning when you wake up and tomorrow afternoon, I want you to look to the left that you couldn't do before and appreciate that you can look to the left without so much difficulty. Because instead of it being about the thing we did with the tissues, can we make your brain and your perception and your nervous system realize that there's less of a threat going in that direction and maybe I can just move through life without worrying about that anymore and in some ways, that's probably more important than that. The, the hands-on um, homework or, oh, God forgive give me the two or three pages of exercises that I tell you to do to strengthen your core or else you'll be somehow a miserable human being. You know, the PTs, PTs love the, the weakness model. They love to say, you know, you need to get stronger. You need to load more. Movement's important. It really is. I, patients come in to me and they say, you know, I say, why are you here? Well, because I have pain. That's not quite enough information. What's the pain stopping you from doing, right? That's the way, that's what I want, the conversation I want to have with them. What's the quality of life that you can't participate in because of that pain? And that becomes what we, we turn into our goals and objective, you know, not minimize the pain from a max of eight to a, you know, a max of two. That's lovely. Um, but what will that less pain allow you to do better and think functional outcomes instead of just those, you know, the, those, those, things that we throw darts at in terms of the numbers for pain. Yeah. So much of what I see with people's uh, pain, especially if it's long-term or chronic, it's not the pain itself. It's their almost mm -hmm. anxiety about the continued ongoing pain, the anxiety right. about what happens when their pain spikes, what happens when I'm out at a party and my pain goes up you know, dealing with that in an ongoing way that sort of cascades. I've, I once worked for a chiropractor and uh, fortunately do not anymore. But I remember um, a, a young lady had come in. Uh, and when I say young, she was, you know, older than me at the time, but she was, you know, in her late thirties maybe. And she spoke uh, fairly poor English, but when she was having pain in her neck, she would say, painting, painting, oh, painting her. Her neck was painting her. Right. And when I uh, worked with her, it was just light, you know, I guess you would call it skin traction, but just very light neck massage to see if we could help. It probably felt a little better after the session. The chiropractor I worked with, and I was very excited to get this job because this was the first medical job I had as a massage therapist. In Louisiana, it was harder at that time for me to get a job in anything but a spa. The chiropractor pulled me aside and said, that lady's crazy. There's nothing wrong with her. I've, I've looked at the scans. You and I, Robert, probably have more likelihood of having neck pain than that lady. She's crazy. And internally, I was completely guffawed. I just wanted to quit because I'm like, she says she's in pain. She's in pain. I don't care what the scan says. Mm -hmm. there, there is no scan for pain. There's a scan for a herniated or maybe a bulging disc. There's an MRI. You know, we can see some tissue changes. But, like, if she says she's in pain, it's getting to this conversation about is the pain mental or is it physical? And is there a, a difference? 
Yeah. And, and the perception of something being painful, I mean, it, it's, it's such a unique individual type experience for someone, for the rest of us to come in and put a judgment on like that is, I think is, um, it's pretty harsh and pretty, uh, it, it, we'll just leave it at harsh. That's probably why you're glad you don't work for that person anymore. Is that the part yeah. of the reason, Robert? Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. 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 Well, it just felt to me, to me, it was, it was diminishing her experience yeah. So yeah. I think there's a strong component, like when we talk about biopsychosocial, it's hard to explain some things when people have almost emotional or psychological baggage um, that mm-hmm. causes some sort of physical discomfort. And even I don't understand all of the the crossover, but I find many people are having you know physical pain that might have some elements of a, a psychological or emotional root. Um, even for myself, when I was in massage school, I, I commented fairly early on my massage schooling. I went to school because I'd had a whiplash. So there was an actual physical trauma. Um, I had lots of pain and I went to massage school and I remember realizing um, I just didn't get a lot of touch mm-hmm. because I'm a man in America and men don't touch men because that's gay. And, you know, depending on your family and upbringing, there may be inadequate touch. So I was getting all of this touch in massage school. And for the first time, I really realized touch hunger, mm-hmm. that there's, there's skin hunger. Now that yeah. that's being yeah. fed, and I remember bringing it up in, in school and then having a conversation with, you know, what are the, my colleagues, essentially the students in school about it. Where, you know, women in American culture, at least, it's more okay for physical affection or touch, not so much for men. But what is the long-term, you know, effect of just that when it comes to uh, nerves, when it comes to sensations, when it comes to pain, even when it comes to brain development? Right. Uh, and so I'm a physical therapist, but I'm more in terms of the manual therapy. You know, you and I resemble each other more than we're different. Um except for the lack of hair. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's what we're doing for a living. I, 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 as a slight offshoot, I think it's interesting, especially from my PT community, physical therapy community, where you've got ther- physical therapists who do nothing but strengthening, do nothing but exercise, and minimal touch, if at all. You know, if there's touch, it's incidental. Um, whereas there's people like me who it's all about touch. Um, but, it, what's interesting is when people come to see us, they've already done some self-selection, right? People come to see me based on what I show them on my website with videos and photographs and the words that I say. And, you know, my room resembles more of a massage therapy room because I've got my power table here in a nice, quiet environment. Um, if somebody is looking for that strength, exercise-based type work, not touch-based work, they're probably going to ne- never seek me out. Whereas my website paints a good picture. Here's who I am. Here's what I believe. And I think I get people who, um, you know, I, I don't know if I'll, I'll, I'd go so extreme to say they're coming to me, to me because they're touch starved, but they're coming to me because they see possibly that there's benefit from a touch-based intervention. They've already done the other intervention. They've seen the strength physical therapist, et cetera, and that didn't help. So I was like, well, let's give this guy a try. But I mean, there's so much that we don't know about the value and the impact of our touch beyond the things we think we're doing with the tissues. And, um, I think I'll save this story until after our next break because it's going to take a little while, but it's a really interesting story um, about a recent research paper that was put out 
that takes a look at really questioning the things we think are going on at the tissue level and how much is happening in the brain. But um, I, I will save that because I feel like I'm going to get the uh, the axe if I start the story too quickly. <laughs> well, the, uh, you know, as a former, again, philosophy student, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking more deep thoughts than I am dealing with research studies, at least in my case. And yeah. when people talk about a difference between the body and the mind, that was a big right. deal in modern philosophy. And I go, uh, uh, is there a difference? <laughs> yeah. Well, and going back to what you just said, it's like, I don't know whether the, that, you know, the deeper thoughts and the research need to be mutually exclusive because there's some pretty darn deep concepts that in, are inherent in a lot of the, you know, the hypothesis that people are looking at that can then sink or swing back into, you know, the deeper way the, uh, that we look at each other, the way we look at pain, the way we look at movement disorder. Um, I, I kind of, in my MFR training, I was kind of taught that, you know, research will never prove um, the things that we know to be important. It's like, boy, you know, that's setting the stage that, that, um, that nothing will ever prove that the work that I do is accurate except good patient outcomes, which, you know, that's important. But I don't know. I, I think if a work is valid, we have to be, have a way to quantify it. And it's just, it's incumbent on me and you to figure out ways to quantify it and allow those two, you know, that used to be separate worlds to kind of merge somewhere in the middle. The research and the, and the deep thoughts I, I think they, they, you know, we can walk around the road together. We certainly um, talk to each other pretty well here, Robert, Mr. Deep Thought. Yeah. 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 The, the, the refining process, the, the refining process in yeah. essentially, because I think of manual therapy as an art as much as a science, but the refining process of even like how you're framing the work can change clinical outcomes and it can also change expectations for new patients or clients coming in. Right, right, yeah, yeah. There's uh, so much about uh, the depth of the work. I think I've worked now for 17 years, and it's always amazing to me to sit back and realize how much of my life has been consumed with clinical practice and these sort of issues. And the fact that this many years in, I'm still asking all these questions that I don't have answers for, that I need to be able to sit down and do more reading, uh, research, uh, reading clinical studies and trying to glean whatever information I can, even this many years in the field. Well, what's interesting to me is when I started myofascial release work back in 1992, I had all the answers. I knew what was wrong with people. <laughs> I could tell you exactly um, what was happening under the skin that was at fault. And the more I've learned, um, the more I've been able to sort of unlearn um, that pompousness of feeling like I knew everything. And I think it's really quite freeing to say, you know what, I know less today than I did last year and less last year than I did the year before. Um, but it's about the more you know, the more you realize you've not quite figured it out um, versus yeah. when I was a novice in this work and, you know, kind of started jumping down that MFR rabbit hole. Boy, I was an expert. My elevator speech was well honed. Um, I was telling people all kind of stuff that were buried in their fascial emotion patterns and all the stuff that. The more I learn, the more I understand, the more I stuck my head out of the rabbit hole and looked at other people's views, the more I realized I didn't quite know Wait, what I was talking about. Break. Yep. Okay. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this episode and you would like to support Robert Gardner Wellness, head on over to rgwellness.store to see all of the products that we currently have in our marketplace. Uh, as well as earlier mentioned, there was the free, first month free, uh, the ins 
Insiders Club, Reboot Insiders Club. There's also workbooks, uh, DVDs, digital copies, digital downloads. There's a bunch of different things um, inside of the RG Wellness store. I highly recommend you go on over there and check it out. See if there's something that will help you improve your practice and increase your clients or or knowledge with your students. And uh, once again, that's rgwellness.store. Thank you for listening to this episode. Oh, I'm returning with Walt Fritz PT. And Walt, you said you were having a, uh, a story. Oh, story. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the things that you and I, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak for you because I think that I've got a good eye on the history of modalities, the history of the way that you and I have been taught things. We're, we're sort of um, shepherded down this road where we're, we're talked about the thing that's wrong with the tissue under the skin, basically, right? Um, that's what I like about Diane Jacobs' work in a little bit, because at least um, she's talking about skin, the only thing we can be certain we know we're touching, which creates a lot of controversy just saying that. But um, in, this is slightly off topic for possibly the massage community that, you, that may follow you, but some of the broader community in terms of the speech pathologists and some other folks um, I, I, I might recognize this study. Um, it's a study done by Nelson Roy, a speech pathologist, University of Rochester. I'm sorry, University of Utah. Um, and I, I, if you take a look at Nelson's work starting back in 1992 for a disorder called muscle tension dysphonia, um, hoarseness of the voice due to too much muscle tension, right? Um, it sounds like a simple type of problem. There's too much muscle tension in the laryngeal area. And there's kind of a, a kind of a mirror with how you and I might have thought about things with high muscle tone, high fascial tone, high whatever, you know, that we're looking at from the tissue pathology perspective. That back in the early 90s when they started um, writing about this and using manual circumlaryngeal work to deal with that manual or that, that muscle tension, the thought was there's too much muscle tension. And that when we do this thing, we're locally reducing the muscle tension. And it, it's, a, it's a tempting and rather simplistic narrative, not unlike some of the narratives that I was taught, and possibly yourself, and, and quite possibly a lot of the, the listeners and, and watchers of this podcast, to think that the thing we think we're working with, there's the problem right here, right? It's in and under the skin. It's in the muscle or whatever, right? Um, but then if you follow Nelson Roy's papers from 1993 through to the present, he evolved from speaking of muscle tension as the primary problem, it's more the signal in the periphery, right? Um, and if you go to his latest paper, 19, or 2019, um, they, they did a functional MRI um, with a patient with muscle tension dysphonia, and they had the patient speak um, while she was in the MRI machine. And they saw certain aspects of her brain um, lighting up the way an MRI will do, and basically showing a, a switch or a change from where what centers they thought should be lighting up to, in this person's case, what was lighting up. And then they were able to actually do the, the work, the manual therapy work, while this person was in the MRI, and they literally watched her brain change, right? And with the, with the conclusion that instead of it being about the muscles, all of a sudden deciding to have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad life, right, quite possibly it was a pattern set in this person's brain due to a lot of other factors that I'm not going to get into here, but and that our impact, the input that we give to that person's nervous system and perceptual awareness and cause the brain to change during the course of that session so that when the clinician let go, 
not only did she talk differently, but her brain was showing different readings on the MRI. And to me, that's the value of research that I think that is missing in a lot of the manual therapies communities. And it's like, well, nobody will ever be able to prove research on this because it's such a um, a one-on-one unique experience. And it's like, well, I think we can do better. We, you know, sure, yeah. it takes money, it takes technology, all those things. But I, I just think sometimes it's it's an easy excuse to say research will never prove what we do and what we show. I think that's a cop out. I really do. Yeah, I, the thing is, re- reduction of variables is challenging with manual yeah, therapy. Yeah. It, it, it is, is yeah. a challenge, but it's one of those things where we we stand up to the challenge. Um, you know, Elon Musk wants to put people on Mars. It's a challenge, but I like the sort of hero's journey, if you will, to use uh, Joseph Campbell as an example. You know, I like the the challenge, the the heroic journey of knowledge, of trying to do things people have not done before. Mm-hmm. And I also, I don't feel a lot of security in maintaining illusions. For me asking, well, why does that work that way? I feel so mm-hmm. much more secure asking that question about body work and about a souffle. Why does a souffle respond that way, Alton Brown and Harold McGee? These are, you know, uh, food chemistry guys. Yep. You know, it's like, well, it, and you go, wow, I don't really know. Why, why does that happen? You know, yep. those things actually make me feel more secure because at least it's a solid question if I don't have a direct answer. Right. And the thing that confounds a lot of our the listeners and watchers of the podcast is, is I'm guessing that you were fed stories, narratives that sounded pretty sciencey in nature, and maybe even had some research to back it up. So when people start questioning on Facebook with some of these large massage groups, some um, uh, arguments that go on, when people start questioning your beliefs, it's like, well, I just think that the, people really struggle with that because they've been fed what sounds like a sciencey story. Um, but the question is, is when you come out of the seminar room, does that story still hold ground? Will, will people with no knowledge of fascial theory or trigger point theory or whatever theory, if you, sit, if you tell it to a well-rounded um, scientist, for instance, or med- medical professional, will that story that you were taught make sense to them? And if not, you know, I don't think that then we discount everything medical profession knows and say, we know more. Maybe it's about questioning what we were taught. And I think that's what got me here and i know from your story robert we got you where you're at is really um you know having the chops to question authority um apparently it's okay to question authority unless you question certain authorities and that's when you get (laughs) that's when you get slapped right um teach us all to be independent just don't get too independent thai massage uh, comes from a theravadan buddhist um lineage and culture and one of the things that happened along my, my personal process, both in dealing with chronic pain and then also dealing with spirituality and religion, was because of my yoga practice, I encountered elements of Hinduism. And then I discovered elements of Buddhism. And then I fell into Thai massage, which has a very direct sort of Buddhist lineage, which I don't eschew. But at the same time, I ask lots of questions. So I tend to think of yoga, for instance, as a set of techniques to use for self-exploration. I think of meditation as a technique to use for self-exploration without holding to religious um, and cultural components. 
So for me, one of the core facets of Buddhism was the fact that the Buddha was trying to ease suffering. I deeply relate to that story about easing suffering. And in addition, uh, what would happen for me is the more you got focused on the cultural distinctions about Buddhism, about where Buddhism was from, about Siddhartha, you know, Gautama, um, the more you seem to get away from just helping people where they were. So, for instance, even if I have a certain spiritual leaning towards Buddhism and towards meditation, I live in central Texas. Uh, Thai massage teachers would tell me, no, no, you know, if, if, if Jethro comes in, you need to teach him Vipassana meditation. And I'm like, Jethro just got off a tractor, bro. Like, mm-hmm. his back hurts. Can I do some, like, manual work on him to kind of maybe lead him that direction, which was more my path? And they're like, no, you know, Vipassana first. Like, we, we have a way of, you know, doing this, but it didn't have a cultural context. Uh, being in a, in a country where people are predominantly Christian and then trying to talk about Buddhism in the middle of their manual therapy just didn't, didn't make any cultural sense. I was like, listen, the fundamental piece was that the Buddha was trying to ease suffering. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? Science helps ease suffering. <laughs> it's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Research is it, good. Research is good. It's just, you know, which research are you going to choose? Which are you going to cherry pick from, so to speak? Because, you know, for, as a PT, I came from a very different frame of reference and balancing my PT background within this early myofascial release training, which is both um, esoteric, but then there was this supposed grounding in biomechanics. We need to get the, the posture back in alignment. We need to get the pelvis um, unrotated and, and, and balanced, et cetera. And um, I was just on Twitter yesterday and saw um, a, a post by uh, Greg Lehman, um, who's a physiotherapist and chiropractor, and who, who basically questioned that within the past 30 years of biomechanic research, do we really have a better handle on why people have low back pain based on biomechanics? And if it was purely a biomechanical problem, then you think in the last 30 years, advances would have been made to understand the biomechanic and the biomechanic flaws in the human more and more. But we're no closer to an answer now than we were 30 years ago or 300 years ago. You know, despite people's pathologizing the way we, you know, look at our cell phones and sit at a computer, et cetera, et cetera. The incidence of back pain probably isn't any different 30 years ago than it is today. And it's like that it, it really comes to care. If biomechanics can matter in some circumstances. It depends on how you cherry pick the evidence sometimes. But um, look at the piece beyond biomechanics. Look at the biopsychosocial, which, which you know, the biomechanics would be partial to the biology. But it's, it's the psychology, not about the person creating the pain. But how it affects one, how being in pain can influence that. Um, but, you know, that's multifactorial too. But the social piece is so huge. And how um, not just our pain, but our inability to engage socially, how it influences us on all two of those other levels. And, you know, the biopsychosocial approach truly is is a way to view all this that that is missing from biomechanical approach, fascial approach, I'm guessing time massage approach, where all these places and they're, they're talking about, we've got the answer. And it's like, well, I don't think any of us have the answer. We can all contribute to um, an answer in terms of helping our patients. But um, I think it's okay to say, you know what? I'm not certain, but I've found tools that are often helpful. Are you willing to go on this journey with me? And that's more and more what I do, not just in my practice, but when I teach this work. Yeah. The, the biopsychosocial model, I've, you know, this has been years ago, but I'm sitting in the middle of time massage jam 
which I run here in Austin, by the way. <clears throat> and you realize that you you kind of stumbled, you kind of fumbled into this thing. And I'm like, I have a room full of people hanging out, clothed, working with each other on mats. It's social. Like we're, yeah, we're creating a context for manual therapy and touch where it's not even, you know, therapist and then client. It's community coming together to say, oh, your shoulder's hurting you? Well, how, how can I work with that? And I just continue educating the people who come to the event to be able to help each other. I think the social ramifications of teaching, say, a loved one to be able to work on their loved ones, work on their children, their husband, their family, their grandma, I think there's so much value in that that extends beyond what I see as just the massage community. There are some massage therapists who are a little frustrated that I'm so open with like teaching the public. And I have to have these conversations where, you know, a massage therapist with folded arms goes, oh, you know, are you okay with people without a license doing what you teach? And I go, yes, absolutely. Because it's not a problem unless they start charging for it. Yeah. 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 Teaching people how to, you know, work with each other, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing um, negative about that. If anything, I think the, the inverse is true. Having a culture where people don't touch, where we live in a, a country that's got an opiate epidemic, you know, apparently somebody's in pain and they're not having what? Are they having enough social connection, enough touch connection to be able to moderate their own pain levels, at least to a degree? Yeah, yeah. I think we've become so enamored with our ego and I don't necessarily mean ego in a in a in a negative way, the ego is all that education and training and background and belief system that we have. And the higher up we go in our training, the more I think we come totally dependent on our ego. And I think that the ego needs to be stepped on once in a while. And I, I truly enjoy my ego be, being stepped on because I, I, there's something that probably after break here, I want to get into in terms of more of a patient centered model that, you know, I know a lot. I've learned a lot. I've been through a lot. Um, but there's one thing missing from all of that knowledge. There's one thing missing from that ego. And it's like, I don't know when my patients are feeling or fearing or hoping or expecting until I include them in on the conversation. So um, it looks like we're ready to go to a break. All right. We'll be back quickly. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you're interested in practicing or learning from Robert Gardner in person, head on over to rgwellness.store. There are a variety of classes listed for the Q4 of 2019. Let's take a look at what we've got. We've got Chicago, Illinois on October 6th. Houston, Texas on October 18th. Christiansburg, Virginia, October 12th. Round Rock, Texas, November 3rd. Yelm, Washington, October 26th. Round Rock, Texas, October 21st. Dallas, Texas, March 29th, and Virginia Beach, Virginia, September 22nd. Check that out. If any of those dates work for you, those are the intro tie classes as well as the Body Workers Conference uh, available to you all through the rgwellness.store. Head on over there and check it out. Thank you. And we return with Walt Fritz, physical therapist, having a really great conversation about pain science, the biopsychosocial model, and manual therapy. Uh, continue with what you were saying, Walt. And let's talk about ego squashing, right? Um, yeah, 
in my model, the model that I learned from, and I'm guessing it's kind of similar to you, people come to see us for help. They come to see us expecting to be told what's wrong with them, often to be told what's wrong with them from something that nobody else has said before because they're hoping that you hold the key to to their happiness, right? Um, and they expect us to know what's wrong with them and to know what to do with them and even how much how to dose the pressure that we use, what kind of pressure is best for a problem like that. And they basically are willing to completely give up power to us yeah. in, or, in order to help them, which on one hand, I totally get, right? They're, they're anxious, they're eager to be helped, and they're willing to put up with things. Um, but there's one thing missing from that equation, and it's like, you know what? I don't know what your beliefs and fears and hopes and expectations and tolerances are until I ask you. So you know, the, way I, the way I demonstrate in a quick and easy fashion, the way that I used to work versus the way that I work now, and I'll do something right here in my face because it's easy for the camera to grab it, right? Let's say that they've got something going on in their jaw, right? Um, the, the way I was trained in this work, I would look at their posture, I would check the, the range of motion, all that good stuff, right? And then we would palpate around, ooh, the, the seduction of palpation, right? Um, we'd palpate around and we'd find, in my case, the fascial restriction. And then I would tell them, What's wrong with them? What I would tell them, what needs to be done to basically fix that, right? And then they would nod, not understanding a darn word that I'm saying because they know nothing about fascia. And I could waste time trying to teach them that, or we could just fix their fascia restriction, right? And then we do our stuff, and they'd feel better. And they said, gee, he must have been right because I feel better, so therefore it must have been a fascia story. But what I do now is we have a conversation. We do the interview. They tell me where they hurt or where they can't open their mouth or whatever, and I still palpate like I always did, but instead of my palpation being telling them what's wrong with them, my palpation is now to begin a two-way conversation. And basically what I'm saying beneath my breath is, well, I found something that in the past typically was important to me, but patient at this moment, when I do this, what do you feel, right? And that's where I stop talking and I let them talk. And sometimes they don't know what to say because they're never they're seldom tasked with being an equal partner in the therapeutic relationship. Um, big yeah. difference in terms of how many of us were trained. We were trained to be the expert. We were trained to work from our ego. We need to rely on that a bit, but just don't overstate it. I love asking when I do something, right? When I do my MFR work to the person's um, face or jaw, it's like, how does this feel to you? What do you feel? And then I let them work on that question. What do you feel can be that hurts or that feels great, right? And I, I even ask questions such as, what I'm doing right now, does it feel like it might be helpful? And then I shut my mouth and I let them work on an answer. Because some people have no clue if it feels helpful. So if they say, no, I don't know what, if it'll be helpful, I turn it around and say, okay, is there anything about what I'm doing right now that feels harmful? In essence, does this pose a threat or a perceived threat? And if they say yes, bam, I'm off right away. I, I love creating this therapeutic partnership um, between the two of us. And instead of being it about a one-way street where I tell them what's wrong with them and, and here's what I need to do, I need to build this partnership so you help me help you. Mm -hmm. um, I've had students, because of our subscription service, there's a lot of, of video of me working in classes and also with clients or apprentices. And someone was giving what they felt was sort of negative uh, criticism about the fact that, like, Robert, you talk in all your videos. Ah. 
And I go, You're well, wait a second. Process. Hold on. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm ed- I'm educating one. So when I'm recording, I know that you know people are going to be listening to this. So I'm walking you through my mental process as I'm working on people. Right. But in addition, uh, partly because of your influence, um, so not to blame you in any way, uh, oh, but please. I do communicate verbally more with clients, especially in pain. Not relaxation, not relaxation sessions, but people in pain about, okay, you know, how does this feel? You know, if, I'm, if I was going to change direction, do you like when I go towards your wrist or towards your fingertips? And they go, oh, man, towards my wrist. And I go, oh, okay. It's like, does that feel more helpful? Does that feel good? Does it? And they're like, well, it's intense, but it's not painful. I think also beyond the actual tissue component, what starts to clue in from the client is, and I think this is huge to me. This is where we talk about, you know, uh, the Buddha trying to ease suffering. The clients fundamentally understood that I was trying to help them, that I cared enough to ask them, that I wasn't just a mechanic working on a car changing parts. That I was actually asking them, hey, how does it feel? I care about your experience. Right. Because to me, if my patient is laying there silently, um, that means they're allowing and expecting me to to do magic with them, to know what's wrong with them and to know what's best for them. And even though, boy, that's a real tempting story, it's like nobody has the ability to know what's best for their patient. We think we do. We think we use the best pressure. Oh, yeah, this, no, this shouldn't hurt. This should feel like deep pressure, but it shouldn't hurt. And they lay there going, oh, yeah, it really hurts, but I'm going to accept what this person's saying <laughs> because I'm paying them a lot of money for this expertise. And if, and if I let them know that I, they need to stop, I may not be able to get the benefit that they have to offer me. And while, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an understandable relationship that's built, I just think that it's one that, that it's just inherently wrong. And I, I will go to my grave saying that because there's people who will feel that a certain amount of pressure is best. But, you know, I've yet, and I look at a lot of research, I've yet to see a research study that compares moderate pressure to deep pressure, to light pressure, and say, okay, which one helped that person's back pain best? Those, those studies, as far as I know, don't exist, right? And yeah. instead of me dictating to you, Robert, what I think is best for you, how about if the two of us negotiate this? Can we negotiate a pressure that feels useful and helpful and safe and you like? Even from a semantic standpoint, I really like as a tool, as a technique, I like compression. And I've had you kind of wave your finger at me and be, oh, no, hold on, hold on. (laughs) And it's like, oh, but the compression is sustained skin stretch. When I teach students in class, part of the challenge I have as an educator currently I have to give the students something that's step one, step two, step three, so they can get started, which is a sequence, which is a protocol. But then they start asking questions about how to improvise. And they don't really understand the improvisation until they've got certain elements down. And they want to know, well, you know, how do I work on this client or how do I work on this issue? And I'll, I'll try to make it more clear to them to say, listen, I'm going to teach you the basics. I'm going to teach you scale so you can improvise and play jazz. It's going to take a little time because the thing is, if I reference it from a time massage standpoint with the Sibsen, the Sibsen are the 10 main energy lines on the body in time massage. Walt's Sibsen are shaped differently than Trent's. 
are shaped differently than Susie's. So I can't deliver the same session to any of you. I have right. to connect with the individual. Right. My way of doing that is without sounding glib. Hi, my name is Walt. What can I do for you today? Right. Make it a unique experience each and every time. Right. Yeah. And forget about those. Oh, you know, I'm having pain here. Oh no, it's your feet. Your feet are out of balance. Your pelvis is out of balance. <laughs> your core is weak or your C1 is out or whatever. Right. Yeah. Those things could come in down the road, but if someone's coming to us with an issue, validate the issue by at least saying, yeah, Okay, let's, so let's start here. How can I help you here? And sometimes just attending to that person from the biopsychosocial element to he's listening to me. I mean, that goes so much further than trying to tell them it's all about their feet when they're coming in for fill in the blank something up here. There's, I think when you, when you see someone do it well, it seems like magic from the outside. And I think that the people don't understand, at least in my experience, I don't know how long you've worked, Walt, but I've been at it for 17 years. It's very challenging to try to explain, you know, what happens to the overall picture at 17 years of practice. It's a little bit like saying, well, Picasso was a painter. And it's like, listen, Picasso took out paint and canvas every day for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, okay, yeah, he put paint on a canvas. Great. No, he practiced muscle memory, training yeah. his body to make shapes that, you know, or whatever he envisioned in his mind. I yeah. feel like manual therapy takes on this great level of art form, okay? But in a sense, and don't take this uh, too literally, it's like we're sculpting people. We're, we're working with people. Yeah. That's a much more complex thing than a canvas and some paints. Yeah. Um, uh, Ray Allen, who some of you might know from uh, the pain science community, dermoneuromodulation, et cetera, he had a, um, posted something a couple months ago about um, an inverse relationship between experience and efficacy um, in that um, quick uh, commercial break. Oh, just oh okay. five minutes left. Okay, sorry. Uh, so let me finish the story real quick. Inverse relationship between experience and efficacy. And the conversation revolved around the more we think we know, the, the more we're biased. We're biased in terms of how we view things and see things and treat things. And that thought of I'm so much more experienced and educated um, really can actually do a disservice to the outcomes, but also to the patient relationship. And I, I thought the conversation um, certainly got heated, but I think it's an interesting one to really look at is, am I allowing my ego to get in the way by not um, basically allowing every patient to be an N of one. Let's start right here with you as an individual and how can I help you instead of it becoming, oh, let me reach into my foul drawer of experience and tell you what's wrong with you and what needs to be done. So, uh, boy, we could talk for yeah. a couple more hours here. Maybe that's sort of a good swag oh, segue okay. to the future one, yeah. No, that, so. that's also why I said we can do repeats of these because I know that once <laughs> you and I start discussing things, it can go in different directions. Uh, yeah. So much of it when it came to pain, again, there's no to my knowledge, there's no way of testing for pain. I just ask them for their, you know, feedback on it. Mm -hmm. That connection, actually caring about their experience and asking them for feedback. Oh, yeah, pain your arm. Where? Where does it go? Is it sharp? Is it pointed? Is it broad? Is it diffuse? Is it, you know, past the elbow? Being able to engage with the client where they're at 
and then slowly, methodically work with them. I'm having a challenge as an educator trying to figure out that difference between a sequence, which I feel like is this rote protocol, Mm -hmm. and improvisation, which means very deeply connecting with the client and engaging in what I think of as intimacy. You're actually connecting with that person. You know, it's almost as similar to me as I'll I'll describe it to some students in class. Um, I'll use a lot of uh, romantic or relationship sort of dating uh, analogies because it's a little bit like saying you went on a date with Mary, you went on a date with Sue, and you had coffee for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. These conversations can be radically different And it's very hard for me to deliver a script for how you're supposed to have a conversation and connect with someone. I think that it's equally as complex when you're dealing with touch. Yeah, yeah. Um, And not just touch, but how they respond to our touch. Uh, It's just, it's so multifaceted. And uh, it it is something that we learn as a sequence or a recipe. And you use different phrasing, but I I tended to phrase it as more of a dance, and I don't mean, you know, ballroom dance where things are pre-choreographed, but things that flow, and it's part of the sequencing that we learn, um, but sometimes I think we end up um, repeating those sequences because we had success with them, and to me, the dance should be unique with every individual, not just with every individual, almost like from one moment to the next. I don't know what I'm going to do next until you and I figure it out, um, which is challenging, like, it, especially with some in some of my <laughs> seminars, I'm I'm getting therapists who literally haven't touched professionally um, um, in terms of their professional training. So you're not only teaching them to touch, but how then what to do with the touch and how to engage the the human being with that touch and whether it can be a positive touch, negative touch, um, whether we're looking for pain or any of the other. I work with so much beyond just quote unquote pain. So much of it doesn't involve pain at all. But, you know, the touch is still can I do something with my touch that in the present feels like it might help in the future, right? And that's really what I'm doing. Um, I don't necessarily phrase it that way, but it's a unique dance every time we work with people. And I know you've got tons of online um, content available. I have a lot of video content on my YouTube channel that sort of, it shows you a dance, so to speak. It's not a real dance because we're doing it on a model, but the dance of how um, sessions can sequence, how the dialoguing piece can work, how the interactional conversation piece can work, instead of it being about the tissue, but about the relationship that we establish with touch um, working on the patient's goals. Nice. So, yeah. Walt, if people were going to learn more about the dance, so to speak, where yeah. would they find information about you online? Easiest way is to go to the website, which is just so happens to be waltfritz.com. Um, basically, you'll find links there to my YouTube pages. I've got a really fun video playlist called 21 Questions, which is a lot more than 21 questions, but it answers a lot of questions. Um, a lot of video content there, all available for you. Um, uh, you know, there's my blog there, there's Twitter, there's LinkedIn, there's Instagram, there's all the other social media things. But um, I think the website is always a good starting point. Waltfritz.com. Come and visit me with a seminar. The seminars that I teach are, are you know, most of the classes I teach now are my neck voice and swallowing disorders class which by all means is not just for speech pathologists. What it certainly is um, for them and with them, but I find other therapists, MTs, PTs, OTs, um, occasionally an MD come and take my class because they're interested in how I approach this work, not just from the areas of, 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 of um, intervention that we happen to be working on in that particular class. So, um, And I'm pretty darn open to questions. If you have a question, uh, send me an email and we'll talk about it. 
Sounds great. Listen, thank yeah. you so much for coming on the podcast today, and we'll talk about future schedules to see Got if it. we can continue to delve uh, into some of these questions in more detail. Got it. And Robert, for your, for your watchers and, and listeners, uh, put your questions down in these threads, and the two of us will try and hammer through them as, uh, as the, uh, the notifications come through. Sure. Thank you. Listen, yep. Walt, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Bye.